YXL. Welcome to the penultimate night of YXL 2007. Good. Uh, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Colossians. You probably know where that is in your Bibles by now. Right after Philippians. Colossians chapter 4. We're actually going to read something near the end of the book tonight. And as you're turning there, uh, I'm going to share with you that I was on the news about four months ago in March. Um, I was on, our, on just about every uh, local affiliate of the 10 o'clock news. And I don't know if y'all watch your local news where you live. You may not. But our local news uh, has a little segment called Crime Stoppers. And you probably have something similar to this, but basically it's a little segment of the news where the police chief gets on and tries to uh, get people to call in with tips on how to help him uh, solve crimes. Okay, And so they show videos of crimes uh, in this little segment, and they get people to call in and give them tips so that they can help solve the crimes and find the criminals. Now, you're asking, how was I on Crime Stoppers? Well, I was the example that Police Chief Roper used to say to the general Birmingham metro area, this is not what you want to do. And it is this. You do not want to walk into a gas station that is being robbed. Uh, I am the example that mothers and fathers told their children, if you see a gas station that's being robbed, don't walk in the door. Um, the story goes, I was in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, uh, actually speaking at RUF at the University of Alabama, and, and it was about 10.30 at night, and I decided that I was going to drive home, but I was a little bit thirsty, so I thought, you know, I'll stop off and get something to drink. So I'm driving down McFarland Boulevard, which is sort of the main strip in Tuscaloosa, and it is littered with restaurants and gas stations and grocery stores. And so, I mean, this, you have to imagine this street is busy. So, I mean, you, you feel pretty safe on a street like McFarland in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. But it is 1030 at night, mind you. So I decide that I'm driving down the road. I like to stop at Chevron. And the reason why I like Chevrons is because they have elfin crackers. And so I'm, I'm passing BP and many other Texaco stations, and I decide... There's a Chevron. So I pull in the parking lot, and uh, my mind is thinking, am I going to get a red Powerade or a purple Powerade? And I walk in the door. I open up the door, and I immediately see this woman standing at the counter. And we make eyes, and she's giving me this look. Her face is pale white. And she's giving me this look as if only she could talk to say, why are you walking in here? And so... We, we make eyes, and, and in the split second, in the moment that I have to think something's not right here, I close the door behind me, and standing in front of me, his back was turned to me, so I didn't, re I mean, it looks really dumb on the video, I agree, but <laughs> I waltz in there, and this guy's got on a black hood, so I don't really know what's going on. Well, right when I figure out something's going on, this guy turns around and he's got on a black ninja <laughs> shirt with a hoodie and a, and a ninja mask over his face. All I could see was his eyes. He's like 5'4". 
And I, I promise you, I would have laughed at ninja bank robber, or gas station robber, had I not looked down and noticed the most terrifying gun pointed at my chest. And so, what do you do at that moment? So he's pointing the gun at me, and he starts yelling at me to get over by the counter where this woman is. And so, you know, let's just say that uh, he needed to wash his mouth out with soap. It was unfriendly language that he was using, but <laughs> I did what he said. So I walked over to the counter. Now, at this point, I don't know if the movies just sort of took over or if this is just what you're supposed to do, but I put my hand, I mean, he didn't ask me to, but I put my hands up and he's yelling at me to throw in my wallet. And so, of course, I throw in my wallet. Um, let me just stop you guys in there that think, you're, you know, why didn't he like Jack Bauer him, you know, and just, <laughs> come on. That was a big gun that was pointed at me. So I, I throw in my wallet and then he keeps yelling at us. And he keeps yelling at me specifically because it's just me and this woman and the guy behind the counter. And he keeps yelling at me to throw him the squares. And he keeps yelling at me, throw, him, throw me the squares. And eventually I just turn to him and I say, I don't know what the squares are. <laughs> and he's counting down. He's like, I'm about to shoot. He's counting down from five. And he, gets, and he gets down to one. And that's at the point where I was like, I don't know what the squares are. And I'm flinched up and I'm thinking, if this guy shoots me, you know, at this moment, you know, y'all are thinking, uh, you know, I was thinking about my wife and I was praying and I was thinking about my wedding and, you know, I'll be, I'll be real with y'all. I was thinking about me. If this guy shoots me, it's going to hurt. <laughs> that, that I was tensed up and I was like, here it comes, right in the back. So he's pointing at me, he's counting down and I finally look at the counter and there's some cigarettes laying on the counter and I realized that ninja guy could have had anything in the store and he wants cigarettes. So I throw him the cigarettes and he runs out the door. Nobody says a word. We all just kind of look at each other like, that did not just happen. I freak out. I run and get in my car and I drive away, which is not the right thing to do. You're supposed to stay and talk to the police. Um, my wife informed me of that. I drove back. I ended up talking to the police. Um, I was the guy that just waltzed into the, you, you, if you see it on video, the guy, Ninja, is like, you know, pointed out with a gun. But I just, my, his back was to me, so I couldn't see it. So I just kind of walk in. Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Chevron. All I wanted was some elephant crackers. So, I told you that story to say, um, for, for weeks... For weeks after this event, I wish I could say that it, that it continues on into July, but literally, you know, for a few weeks after this event, I, I have to admit to you that I was a new man. I mean, I felt like I escaped. I don't know if any of you have had a near-death experience. I assume some of you have, but when you feel like in the moment you could be going down um, and, you, and you get out alive and really untouched, you know, it gives you a completely new perspective on life. You feel like you are, you are someone different than you were before Ninja Gun Man was pointing the gun into my back. Now, we've been going through the book of Colossians, and I want you to know that Paul writes his letter to those people to say, you have been stained by Jesus. Jesus has put his mark on you, and you are new. You are a new person. You're a new humanity. Everything about you 
the way that you think about life, the way that you think about money, the way that you think about your bodies, the way that you think about culture, everything about you is supposed to be new. That's what Jesus does when he puts his mark on you. When he stains you, you are a new person. And that is what Paul is trying to say to the Colossians. And I believe that through his holy word, Paul is trying to say that to you and I tonight. You are a new humanity, YXL. You are new. Everything that you think should be new. And in Colossians 4, Paul just wraps up his letter with three very practical instructions for the Colossian church. And so tonight we're going to look at those three examples, those three uh, instructions that Paul has for the church. So if, if you have your Bible open, I, I invite you to read along with, with me in Colossians 4, verses 2 through 6. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you rescued me out of the uh, ninja uh, man in March. And I thank you that much, much, much more importantly, that my name is written in your book of life and that you have taken me, you've rescued me, you've redeemed me, you have stained me by your blood. And so for those of us in here, that consider ourselves part of your church, I pray that as we consider these pa this passage, that we would see life differently, that we would see life with a new perspective. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Three things that I think Paul wants you and I to see from this passage is that he wants us to devote ourselves to prayer. He wants us to declare the mystery of Christ and he wants us to be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders. So that's where we're going tonight. We're going to talk about prayer, declaring the mystery of Christ, and that we would be wise in the way that we act towards outsiders. Point number one, Paul wants you and I to devote ourselves to pray. Not just to pray, but to devote yourselves to prayer. Now you have likely had a lot of people, even this week, challenge and encourage you to pray. I'm going to give you one more reason why I think you should pray. And Chad talked about it in chapter one of Colossians. And it's this idea that Jesus holds all of creation together. Jesus holds everything together. And not just the framework of our world, he holds the intricate details of your life and my life together. You have to hear me say that. Jesus holds not just the big picture, not just the big events when babies are born and when people die and the, you know, the times that we really do recognize him, but he holds the intricate details of your life together in his hands. And basically another way to put that is this. God, Jesus, is at work in our world 
right now. Jesus is at work in your life right now. Bertrand Russell was a famous atheist of his day, and he used to poke fun at Christians, and he used to ask Christians if they had somehow lost God, or if maybe God was asleep, or maybe God has, had lost his way, or maybe God was on vacation, and nothing could be further from the truth. Paul is saying in the book of Colossians that God is at work in your life right now. And he will be tomorrow, and he will be the next day when you go home. God is at work in your life. Now, what does that have to do with prayer? Exactly this. YXL, you're a very talented group, right? You're very gifted. At whatever you put your hands to, guess what? You accomplish great things. I know that about you. This is my second time to be with you. You're really good if you want to do something to get it done, right? And so you would almost have the sense, the illusion, and it is illusion, that you hold your life together. You are so gifted and talented and able to do all that you really want to do, it seems, that you could almost believe in the illusion that you hold your world together. And what I want to say to you tonight is this. Prayer could be the best thing for you to do to remind yourself that you are not Jesus. You do not hold your life together. It is Jesus. And when we bow our heads, even our posture is saying, I am not the one at work. I'm actually going to stop and say, Jesus, you are at work and it is not me. And we just need physically and emotionally and cognitively something that would remind our hearts that it is not us that holds things together. Some of you need to hear this because you have your iPhone, your Blackberry, and your daily planner, and you're so busy, and it seems like you kind of run the show, and you just need to stop and bow your head and be silent and say, I am not Jesus. I am not God. I do not hold this world together. Now, the second thing that, that will accomplish this, and I know this isn't in the text, but I just want to say it. Um, Chad and I's boss actually uh, told me this, but... Another thing that you can do to remind yourself that you are not Jesus is to have a hobby, is to do something that you find restful. Does anybody in here know how to rest? And I'm not talking about sitting on the couch and watching TV. That's kind of lazy. I'm talking about do you have an activity that you go and do that says to your heart while you're doing it, I'm not Jesus. I'm not the one in control. He is, and I can rest. I, I know something about all of you, and that is, is that you are frantically busy. You are trying to build your resume in high school so that you can get into a college, a good college. And when you get to college, you're going to build your resume so you can get into a good graduate school. And when you get into a good graduate school, you're going to try to build your resume so you can get a good job. And when you get a good job, you're going to work frantically to make a lot of money. And what's it all for? Do, do, do you know how, what it's like to find an activity that communicates to your soul that you're not Jesus. You're not the one that's in control. For me, it's golf. I don't know what it is for you. It's probably not sitting on the couch and watching TV. It pro I'm just saying it probably isn't. That may feel restful to you, but would you go and find some hobby, something that communicates to your soul that God's the one in control and not you? So Paul says, 
Go back to the text. Paul says, devote yourselves to prayer. And he says it being watchful. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. And while you're doing it, I want you to be watchful. Now, there's a lot of different things that commentators suggest what Paul means by being watchful. Here's what I think he means. I think when he, when he is saying to pray and be watchful, he's saying expect God to act. I just told you that God acts, right? Well, when you pray, you're not just stopping to say, I'm not the one working. You are saying someone else is, and it's God. And, and when you pray, you're watchful. You're saying, God, you are the one who acts. You are the one who works in my life. You're the one that holds it together. Would you do that? And pray expectantly, pray expectantly that God would act. I heard a story recently, and I honestly don't know if it's true, but um, I read it in a book. And basically it said that Napoleon, one of the greatest military generals in history. I mean, there was a time when Napoleon owned a lot of the world. Well, there was a time uh, when Napoleon was, at, was in power that one of his generals asked him for a huge sum of money, a ridiculous sum of money. And he just sent a letter to Napoleon. He said, um, would you give me this money? And so his Napoleon's chief advisors got together and said, bro, you know, Napoleon, that would be the dumbest thing to do. Like, do not give this guy money, at, at least not that much. And Napoleon turned to the advisor and said, no, you give him everything that he asks for. And they're dumbfounded, and they said, why? And he said, because this guy knows that I am both able and willing to give him what he asks. And I just want to ask, when you pray, do you believe that God is both willing and able to answer your prayers? Do you believe that? Later on, when we huddle up and pray, will you pray expecting that God is both willing and able to do what we ask? Second thing that Paul instructs the Colossian Christians to do is to proclaim the mystery of Christ. And this is just very short, but when Paul says the mystery of Christ, you know, you Bible scholars out there, in the first century, why would Christ have been a mystery? In, in, in the time when Paul wrote this letter, why would the message of Jesus be a mystery? Well, you know that it's because everybody in that time had categories for people, right? Everybody said that you were either a Jew or somebody else. You were circumcised or you were uncircumcised. You were religious or you were a pagan. And, and we had all these categories. And Jesus walks up into the, onto the scene and says, no more. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer man and woman. And, and so in 2010, we think, boy, look how far we've come, right? Let's be honest. What categories do we have for ourselves? There's a long list, and I could not come up with all of them, but here goes. There's smart people, and there's not smart people. There's beautiful people, and there's not beautiful people. There's athletic people and there's not athletic people. There's musicians and there's not musicians. There's artists and there's not artists. There's Republicans and there's Democrats. There's public school kids and there's private school kids and there's homeschool kids. And and, and here's what happens. Follow me on this. Follow me on this. Here's what happens. Here's what we do. Here's what you do and here's what I do. When we make these categories, guess what? 
we tend to look down at someone in the other category. Do we not? Do we not tend, when there are two groups of people, do we not tend to look down and feel superior to the other group? And what Jesus says to you in 2010 is no more. There is no longer the categories that you have in your mind for people. Because guess what? Jesus is the great equalizer. In Jesus, we are all on the same playing field. And what is that? We are sinners saved by grace. Jesus levels the playing field and says, we are all the same. There is no longer any reason why you should look down on someone in another group. There is no reason why if you are in a public school that you should feel superior to someone in a private school. There is no reason why if you're homeschooled you should feel superior to someone who's in a public school. There's no reason why a Republican should feel superior to Democrat. So watch out. There is no longer distinctions that we have made. That is the mystery of Christ. All right, finally, Paul is saying, the third thing that Paul is communicating to the Colossians is this. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Be wise in the way that you act towards outsiders. Now, please, I want you to hear me, YXL. There is an assumption in this command that you need to know. The assumption in Paul's command is that you would be around outsiders. So I just want to ask you a question. Take a snapshot of your life when you get home. Not here, but when you get home, take a snapshot of your life. Are you around outsiders? Are you around people that don't believe the same things that you believe? Can you name non-Christians that are in your life? Can, can, are names coming to mind right now of people that you know and maybe that you are friends with that do not believe the same things that you do? And I just want to say this. If you enjoy the blessing of being in a Christian school, I see that this can be very difficult for you, but I just want to say, would you, would you be creative in finding ways to be around outsiders? And if you're homeschooled, it's the same reason. The same. If you do not find yourself in life around outsiders in, in any way, um, this application isn't for you. The first thing you need to do is ask yourself, why am I living differently than my Savior lived? And you need to repent of that, and you need to find ways. You need to ask God to give you wisdom, and you need to talk to your parents and your youth pastor. You need to talk to people and find out, how can I be around outsiders? You just need to ask yourself that question. But for those of you that do go to school or play sports or in a band um, with those who, you would say, who we would say are outsiders, then Paul says, I want you to be wise in the way that you act towards them. And I, and I want your, your conversation, I want your words, your speech to be filled with grace and seasoned with salt. Now, some of you have heard this before, but there's an author named Dick Kyes who wrote a book called Chameleon Christianity. Has anybody heard of a book called Chameleon Christianity? It's really easy to explain. Dick Kyes in this book says that when Christians come up against people that they would consider to be outsiders... They have one of two tendencies, and we hit on this in the cultural seminar this afternoon. They either act like ox, oxen, I don't know the plural of ox. They either act like oxen, 
or they act like chameleons. Here's what he means. When oxen sense danger from an outsider, what do they do? They put their family in the middle, they huddle up, and they all face inward so that the outsider cannot get in, so that there cannot be any danger from outside. They huddle up, they all face towards each other to keep the danger outside. And this, this plays itself out in your churches all the time. When Christians become uncomfortable with the world around them, what do they do? They, they turn inward, they circle up real tight, and the reason why that we do that is because we don't want the pollution from outside to come in, right? We don't want to be polluted by the outside. And the problem with that is, is that when you circle up and you form a little circle, guess what? The pollution is in the circle. Because just as you've heard all this week, where does the pollution come from? Your heart. Your heart is where the pollution flows from. So you cannot circle up and think you're going to keep the bad stuff out. The bad stuff is in your heart. It looks like this. Whenever my wife and I have a difficulty or an argument or a fight, where does my mind always go? It always goes to what? There's something wrong with her. That's where, it all, like, first thing, and I hate this about myself, but I always think there must be something wrong with her. When you, when you don't get along with somebody at school, or you're just not getting along with someone, where do you always go? You always go, there's something wrong with them. And I would just like for you to consider the problem could be you. The problem with my marriage is me. It's not her. And I've got to be convinced of that. So, so that's what oxen do. And, and this is kind of humorous, but another problem with doing this is guess what the world sees? That's all they see is our backsides, and it's not pretty, I promise, okay? The other response that Christians do, and some of you know exactly what this is like, is that we act like a chameleon. And y'all know this. Oxen is a little bit weird. But a chameleon, whenever it senses danger, what does it do? It, it blends in. It becomes the same color as whatever the environment is around it. And that is just an obvious, y'all know exactly where I'm going with this one. When you as Christians become uncomfortable with your surroundings, when you come up against people that you don't agree with, what do you do? You try as best as you can to fit in, to blend in, to look like, to act like the culture around you. And this plays itself out all the time. The problem with this is when you and I try to blend into our culture in order to avoid difficult conversations, we tend to compromise what we believe is true. I mean, y'all know that, right? I mean, when, we, when we try to blend in, it always, without fail, means that you and I will compromise something that we know is true. And Paul says, I want you to be wise in the way that you think about outsiders. And I just ask you very bluntly, have you considered where it is that God is trying to put you in your life so that you would learn how to be wise towards outsiders. And I don't know where it is for you, but have you considered that God is trying to stretch you somehow and you have a tendency to do one of two things. It's to run because it's too hard. It's easier to be around people that, that believe the same thing we do, is it not? 
But where is God stretching you? If you have the tendency to turn inward and to retreat, where is God stretching you to say, I want to put you around outsiders so that you, with the stain, with the mark of Christ, can take it to the outsiders. And I want you to learn how to be wise. Or where is God stretching you to say, guess what? You're compromising. You are trying to look like the environment in which you are in, and you are compromising what you know to be true. We need to be stretched. One practical application that Paul gives us in this passage with thinking about outsiders is your words, your speech, your conversation. And this is so easy to consider for us. But Paul says, let your conversation be always full of grace. Let your words be always full of grace. Now, what in the world is Paul saying there? Well, what's grace? I mean, we, we can all define that. We've all been to Patrick's seminar. What's grace? It's not getting what we deserve. So I'll just ask you the question. When somebody leaves a conversation with you, do they feel like they've gotten what they deserve or do they feel like they've gotten actually better than what they deserve? When someone walks away after talking to you, do they feel condemned? Do they, do they feel like they've actually gotten better than what they deserve. That's just something new for you to consider. But Paul says, I want your speech to be full of grace. And I would say this, to the degree that you understand that you've been shown grace, to that degree, you will speak graciously to others. Paul also says, let your conversation be seasoned with salt. There's a couple different things, ways that we could go with this. But what does salt do? It makes stuff better, Right? It's unhealthy, but it makes stuff better. And I think that's the point. Do you speak about Jesus in a way that enhances the way that he is perceived in the world? Do your words invoke imagination in outsiders? Or do you speak about Jesus in a way that is common and just rote and normal and kind of boring? Or do you speak about your relationship with Jesus with such imagination that someone will listen to it and say, I have no idea what that is, but I'm interested. Let your speech, let your words be seasoned with salt. And let it always be filled with grace. To the degree, to the degree that you know that you yourself have been shown grace. To that degree, you will speak. Your words will be gracious to others. To the degree that you know that you were once an outsider, to that degree, you will be wise to outsiders around you. Do you hear that? It, you have to know that you were once an outsider. Otherwise, you will never understand how to be wise to the outsiders in your life. Remember this, YXL. You've been stained. Jesus through his blood, has put his mark on you. But do not forget that that stain cost something. Jesus has stained you with his blood, but you know that it cost him his life. The, the, you walk in life in freedom because of that stain, but it cost Jesus the stain of death to bring you to that place. So Paul is sending you out into the world. Paul is sending you out of YXL Glorietta, down the mountain, back into your communities. And he's saying you are a new 
humanity. You are a new community. You think about things differently and never forget that the stain of life that you carry meant the stain of death for Jesus. And, and, and it's like in the movie Braveheart, at the very end when Robert the Bruce is about to charge the hill, what does he do? He pulls out the stain-covered cloth that represents the sacrifice that William Wallace made for freedom. He pulls it out, he looks at it, and he remembers he remembers that the freedom that he is fighting for costs somebody something. When you go home, would you go home remembering the stain that you walk in of freedom cost Jesus the stain of death? Let's pray. Our Savior, we walk in freedom from condemnation. Oh, Jesus, we walk in freedom from guilt. We walk in freedom from shame. But that meant, Jesus, that you had to become shame. That meant that you had to become guilt. And that meant that on the cross you had to become condemnation. May we never forget that that freedom was costly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.